Rachel, are you ready to tackle our last GMOs podcast? I've definitely learned a lot through these three podcasts that we've done. Yes, I am ready. And I also feel like my knowledge on the topic has increased. And, you know, looking into both sides, I also feel like I'm more aware of the arguments of both pro-GMO and anti-GMO individuals after doing all this research. So it's been cool. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's always good when you can have more understanding and empathy towards someone, whether they believe the same thing you do or believe something different. So this has been a really great example of that. In this podcast, we're going to answer the question of what are the pros of GMOs? This was one of the listener questions. And at the end of last episode, we thought, oh, we'll talk about the pros then. But we realized this cons episode is getting pretty long. So we wanted to do another (laughs) podcast because we spent quite a bit of time going over the concerns. And this podcast, I think, was a bit harder for us to put together because, yes, there are pros with GMOs. But we're also skeptical scientists, and we can always point out some things that are concerns. And that's always our tendency, whether we're looking at something that people agree on or don't agree on. It's just to kind of be more skeptical. But we hope that we've given you a balanced view today. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it was also hard to be balanced with the anti-GMO article, too. Just the more you start looking into it, the more holes you can poke in any argument, right? Exactly. The number one benefit of using GMOs is being able to spray fewer pesticides. So GMO crops such as BT corn produce their own insecticides that don't harm humans so that farmers don't have to spray other potentially toxic substances. So from 1996 to 2018, pesticide spraying has been reduced globally by 8.6%, and that is equivalent to about 776 million kilograms of pesticides. Do you know if BT corn is like separate from the whole Roundup Ready sort of system that I know people talk about? Yeah, it it is. It's a different thing because the BT corn produces an insecticide against like a specific pest. I think they're called um, corn borers that will like bore into the corn. Um, and that's a different thing from like the herbicide resistant crops that are GMO um, because they have some kind of resistance to whatever herbicide you're spraying. So that herbicide will kill the weeds, but not the the crop that you want to grow. Um, so in that case, that's not reducing a pesticide necessarily. You're still having to spray some kind of chemical and people can be skeptical about that because, you know, Mon- Monsanto sells this Roundup Ready to go with their crops like soybeans for instance Um, and then it's like wow you've got a real cap on the market here because you're you're selling not only the seeds but also the spray that goes with it so it can be a little controversial for that reason see here we go we're (laughs) already going into the cons (laughs) but it is cool like I had never heard of BT corn until we started researching to show that okay you can make a plant that produces its own insecticide so you're not having to spray stuff on it and that can yeah, just it's prevent really cool. the specific insect that you don't want from eating the plant. Like, that's really cool to me. Because I know I've definitely kind of had some skepticism regarding the whole soybean and Roundup Ready. Because I'm like, well, it's just a lot more pesticide. Like, you're not really doing that much good for the environment. Right. 
GMO crops also reduce the need for a farming process called tillage. Tillage loosens the soil and is important for removing weeds, but it requires fuel. Since removing weeds is facilitated by herbicide-resistant GMOs, the need for tillage is reduced. Thus, the utilization of GMO crops can lower greenhouse gas emissions, and it's estimated that this reduction is equivalent to removing over 15 million cars from the road. And this would be an example of, I think, the, the soybeans and the Roundup Ready because it, this is talking about herbicide-resistant GMOs. Yes, yeah, that's right. Another benefit of GMOs is that they increase crop yields, allowing farmers to produce more food without using more land. And as we know, with the global population increasing more and more every year, you know, food security is obviously a concern. Beyond the quantity of food we grow, GMOs also open up the kinds of foods that we can grow. We've talked before about the fear that GMOs may introduce allergens into food, but on the flip side, GMOs have the potential to eliminate the allergy-causing properties of foods. We pointed out before the downside of large GMO companies, and you know, again, already in this podcast, that they they may be um, more biased and hold a monopoly on the seed markets. However, these companies aren't always bad. Although companies may have biases, they also have extraordinary funding, which allows them to perform some of the most in-depth studies in the field. And sometimes they use these resources for good, as was the case with the papaya disaster of the 1990s. The papaya ring spot virus almost completely wiped out all of Hawaii's papaya crops. But researchers at universities were able to collaborate with biotech companies to create a GMO papaya plant that was resistant to the virus. Although the process was slowed down because of USDA regulatory concerns and the company patenting concerns, the seeds were eventually distributed to farmers free of charge in 1998. But it's also worth noting here, I mean, we talk about the ability of these companies to fund these big studies, but we've discussed on the How Science Works podcast and some others that if a company is funding a study, they have an ideal thing they're looking for from that study. So it's important to note when you're looking at these studies that are maybe funded by some of these bigger GMO companies, you want to be aware of, okay, they're going in with the idea of something they'd like to get out of it. I mean, it's still the science, it's still the science, but they have a motivation that's different from just the curiosity of research. Right. And most of the time that motivation is making money. Because it mm-hmm. it also it costs money to do all these things, and they have a responsibility to their shareholders. A big draw of GMOs is that they can potentially help with some of our nutrient deficiencies, but this comes with the caveat that not all foods with nutrients added in are actually metabolized better, meaning that a food could have a vitamin added to it, and our bodies could not actually be able to absorb it, which is not very helpful. For those of you who listened to our two-part vitamin series that came out last year, nutrient deficiencies and their horrible effect on humans is probably still fresh in your mind. Because and being in a Western country, we're not really familiar with uh, what can happen when you don't have a certain vitamin or mineral. Because we have almost all of those vitamins and minerals enriched in our foods, fortified in our foods, or just we get it on a day-to-day basis. In the vitamins episode, we talked about vitamin A deficiency, which is a serious issue in some African and Asian countries. Vitamin A is important in eye development, and without enough vitamin A, people can go blind. In fact, over a million kids every year die of vitamin A deficiency disease, and over 500,000 go blind. This is tragic, and could be prevented if they just had some vitamin A in their diets. 
The thing about vitamin A, however, is that it is found in foods that are difficult to grow in some of these Asian countries, or foods with vitamin A are very expensive to procure for people living in these developing countries. And some of these foods are like broccoli and carrots, and even butter can have some fat in it that can help with vitamin A absorption. The staple food in most Asian countries is rice, which is a fantastic starch. Uh, I love eating rice. (laughs) I eat probably too much of it. Um, And it's a great source of carbohydrates, but it doesn't really provide much fat or many vitamins. And you may wonder, what does fat have to do with this story of vitamin A? Well, vitamin A is a fat-soluble vitamin, meaning that it is stored in your fat. So if you get too much vitamin A, you aren't going to pee it out like you would pee out water-soluble vitamins, like vitamin C is a good example of this. But you could end up getting vitamin A toxicity if you took too much vitamin A because it will store up in your fat. And we talked about this more in the vitamins episode of how vitamins are great things, but some of them, if you have too much, it can actually be pretty deadly. It's a fine balance. When vitamin A is ingested with fat, it's much more active in the body. So often vitamin A is taken with an oil to help promote absorption. Back in the 1990s, Ingo Petrikas saw the plight of vitamin A deficiency firsthand and decided that he wanted to do something about it. So a little bit of biochemistry here. In the body, beta carotene is a molecule that can convert to vitamin A. In normal rice, the compound beta-carotene is produced in every part of the rice except the kernel of rice, which is what you eat. Petrikas thought that he could genetically engineer rice to produce beta-carotene in the rice kernels. And he named this new rice golden rice because the rice kind of took on a yellowish hue. The first round of golden rice where Petrikas did this was unveiled in 2000. But unfortunately, the amount of vitamin A in the rice was not enough to warrant distributing it. Over the next 10 years, Petrikas and his team worked on golden rice. And eventually in 2005, they produced golden rice that had a high level of beta carotene. And a subsequent study came out in 2009, not from their lab, but people using golden rice. And this study showed that beta carotene from golden rice was successfully converted to vitamin A in humans. Granted, this study only had five participants. Still, this was the first study looking at golden rice in humans, and it gave a reference to how much golden rice would be needed for children to hit that daily vitamin A requirement. Another paper came out in 2012 looking specifically at golden rice in children, but it was retracted. Oh, that's a big deal. Why was it retracted? So we have links for the paper and the retraction in the show notes, but in short, the paper was retracted for ethical reasons and not necessarily scientific reasons. Apparently, the parents were not given a consent form for their children to be in this study, which is a huge issue. The retraction also stated that there were some eligibility issues of two participants that were in the study. I think there were 63 total participants, so two of those participants should not have been in the study based off of their eligibility. Mm. Ethical consent is crucial for any study involving humans, especially when it involves children. And I mean, we talked about this back with the when we went over the CRISPR baby situation. That was also a, an issue of informed consent for the parents. So, you know, it's so important for the researchers to work with people that specialize um, in ethics to make sure they're conducting their studies ethically. So while we don't condone this paper, I'm kind of curious to see what they found uh, since the retraction doesn't involve like the science and how they ran the actual experiments. 
Yeah, so I mean, this this study is interesting. I haven't actually read a retracted paper before, but when I opened the PDF, every page had retracted in all caps and the date, and it was in big orange letters. So it was very clear this paper was retracted. Wow, yeah. I myself have never read a retracted paper, but I'm glad that they make it pretty clear that, that it's been retracted. Yeah, but we can still see what they found. Yeah, so the study looks at 68 children ages 6 to 8 and gives them either spinach, vitamin A supplements, or golden rice to see how children with those three treatments compare in their vitamin A levels. So then they were able to test vitamin blood vitamin A levels, and they found that the children who had golden rice had just as high vitamin A levels as those who took the supplements and had higher levels than the kids that just had spinach. However, I saw this information from another source, but these kids did have fat sources from the food, like butter, which could be contributing to vitamin A levels, like to bumping up normal vitamin A levels. But all these kids are getting the same diet across the supplements or the golden rice or the spinach. And even with that, the golden rice and supplements were still higher than spinach. Beyond this paper, there are a few other papers that confirm these findings, um, which, you know, makes us feel better since this paper was retracted. And they they show that golden rice results in similar vitamin A levels than um, as a supplement. So we're linking more about this in the show notes if you're curious to look at these studies. Well, if golden rice is seemingly a good source of vitamin A, why isn't it being grown everywhere today? (laughs) A lot of the holdup is actually due to the science. Trying to make a better plant takes time, especially when plants are so finicky. I mean, I can barely keep my succulents alive, so I can see how this would take time. That's true. I uh, I relate to that. I tried to grow spices last year, and um, I just give up. <laughs> <laughs> a larger holdup um, for golden rice was governmental regulation alongside a huge outcry against golden rice, even though its goal was novel. A lot of the bureaucracy revolved around the Cartagena Protocol for Biological Safety and the Precautionary Principle. So there's a description from an article from foreignpolicy.com, and I'm just going to share this quote because I could not word this principle any better. But bear with me, it's a long quote, kind of seems convoluted. But the principle states that if a product of modern biotechnology poses a possible risk to human health or the environment, then it is prudent to restrict or prevent the introduction or use of that product or technology, even if the magnitude or nature of the risk is uncertain, speculative, scientifically unproven, or even unknown. Although it may have been benign in its intent, the effect of the principle has been to slow the pace of biotechnology research and development, and in some cases even to halt it at least temporarily, at multiple times during the research and development process. On the one hand, this this principle kind of makes sense. As we've talked about a lot on this podcast, uh, we don't know all the effects of our scientific discoveries. So whether that be the impact of CRISPR on future generations or the effect of genetically modified food. On the other hand, the point this article makes about slowing down biotech is a good point, especially in the case of golden rice, where many studies have shown that it's safe, effective, and does what it's supposed to do. Um, this principle can kind of hold up life-saving biotechnology yeah it's definitely a tough line i mean i understand people's caution but i also see the strong desire to give this to countries so that it can save children's lives 
However, as we talked in the last podcast, we don't know how discoveries will affect the future. And maybe a better way to approach the issue of vitamin A deficiency in these countries would be to find a way to grow broccoli or carrots in these countries. But I'm sure something as simple as that would also be very difficult. Further, and we know very little about this topic since it's not our expertise, um, there's the difficulty of getting golden rice to the people who need it, especially if they don't have land to grow it themselves. So then you get into an issue of someone charging them exorbitantly. The complications could go on and on. Bureaucracy aside, this discovery of golden rice is impressive and fascinating, but also tragic. But it does show one way that GMOs can be used for good, though those GMOs have to get to the right place in order for them to be effective. So after talking about all the concerns and all the pros of GMOs, we come to our final listener question. What's safer to eat, GMO or pesticide-sprayed plants? This is a difficult question to answer, and it depends on a lot of factors. And if you stayed with us through all three of these podcasts, you can see that it's not a black and white answer. Yeah, definitely. For instance, um, you know, we talked in the last podcast about the differences in review processes for GMOs in Europe and the U.S. So based off this, I probably trusted a GMO plant that got approved in Europe over just in the U.S. because Europe has a mandatory scientific review process, whereas in the U.S. it might not have gone through that process. Yeah, that's a great point. Though in Europe, you may have things take longer to come to market versus the U.S., but that's probably a good check and balance. And on the other hand, an answer may depend, may change depending on the specific pesticide and what's been reported by the EPA about this pesticide. Another question is what is the genetic change that's been made in this specific plant? So is it a gene deletion that might occur in nature or have scientists added something that could potentially be an allergen? I mean, hopefully in the U.S., the EPA would, would address this if, if it was suspected to become an allergen. And lastly, does something need to be genetically modified? While Rachel and I have our own personal beliefs on this, we hope that after listening to this podcast and the previous two, you can answer for yourself. And if you have thoughts on this, we'd love to hear them. And we have our email and our social media handles in the show notes. 